God made it, but how did he make it? And that's what we want to look at today, according to Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. Three headings today that I'm going to operate under. So if you're taking notes, might be helpful. Number one, science and the Bible. I think we need to just touch on something there before today's sermon. It's going to come up a lot in the book of Genesis. So science and the Bible, uh, theories of creation. Not everybody reads chapter one the same way. Not every godly Bible-believing Christian reads Genesis chapter 1 the same way. And so we've got a lot of different frameworks that people are working from out there. So let's look at the the major theories of creation. And then we'll look specifically at the actual days of creation. That should get us through chapter 2, verse 3. Next week, we're going to uh, come back. It, It might feel like we're not talking enough today about the creation of man and woman. So I agree. Next week, we'll, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, actually look back at chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. That'll make sense when we get there. But just know that we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time in these first few chapters of, of Genesis because they are foundational for our faith. Let's pray and we'll get started together. Father in heaven, thank you for this day you've given us. I thank you for the grace that you've poured out on us. It's, it's evidenced by us being here. Um, and breathing air and eating food and drinking water and enjoying one another's company and in a, in a warm building. God, you've been gracious to us. God, help us today as we read about your creation to connect every good thing in our life to you. When we read about the world that you created and when we think about how that has affected us today and we think about the many blessings that you've given us today, God, connect that in our hearts with you so that we would not forget where this comes from. That we would not forget that the the author of everything good and merciful and gracious in our life is, is you. Because we want, Lord, you to get the worship you deserve and the praise that you deserve and the glory that you deserve. So... As we read together Genesis chapter 1, as I preach through Genesis chapter 1, God, we ask that you would take our hearts to school, that you would teach us what we need to be taught, that you would sharpen our understanding, that you would lift the fog for some of us, that you would even use this for some who, who do not love you, who do not believe anything you have to say, and that this would be a turning point for them this morning where they turn to you. So we are thankful for this chapter in this book that we're thankful for, in this Bible that we're thankful for. By your Holy Spirit now, instruct our hearts that we may become more godly and holy and pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, open it up. Genesis chapter 1. I promise you we'd get through more than four words today. So we've got a lot more. And if this goes well, we'll get through chapter 2, verse 3. First heading here, science in the Bible. Let's talk about science in the Bible, and I want you to see how this this applies to what we're going to look at today. Uh, Last week I advocated reading Scripture at face value. Still do. This is how I read the Bible. If you're a Christian, that's how you should read the Bible. 
That means that what it says, it says. And you don't try to make it say something differently. That isn't to say that sometimes we're going to misunderstand what we're reading and we may come later to a better understanding. But don't be reading the Bible skeptically and critically. Now, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, I know you do that, and I expect you to do that, and we all did that at one time. But if you were a Christian, do not read your Bible critically. Hey, this is the Word of God. So here's the... The difficulty, though, when we come to Genesis chapter 1, and that is that a face value reading of Genesis 1, unlike, I think, unlike any chapter in your Bible, okay, gets roaring laughter from secular science today. Okay, Genesis chapter 1 stands alone in how it apparently collides with modern accepted science. It's a sort of laughing stock in much of the science world. So I think it's kind of like an elephant in the room that we need to address. I want to just say a couple brief things about science and the Bible. First of all, here at Veritas, we, we love the Bible and we love science. We love the Bible a lot more then we love science, but we, we do. We love science and we think it's very valuable and we're very thankful for it. But let's clarify a difference in our minds and hearts. Number one, the Bible is divine revelation. Divine revelation. So we think that we get knowledge from the Bible and, and we can get knowledge from science, but the knowledge that we get from the Bible is divine revelation. So that's why the Bible is foremost in our mind. That's why any other knowledge that we get is subservient to the Bible, because we think the Bible is God telling us how things went down. And so we believe Him, and we believe Him no matter what. Now this does not mean, as we'll see today, that we abandon science. But if it did mean that we abandon science, we faithfully believe that God's Word is God's Word. And if we're not willing to have our priorities straight there, then the Word of God means nothing. It's not the Word of God. If you're a Christian... You believe that this is the Word of God. And if it is the Word of God, by which you gain knowledge of God, of you, of the universe you live in, that knowledge is authoritative over any other knowledge that you or I might discover. So the Bible, divine revelation. Science is material exploration. I mean, there's lots of ways that we could define science. That's probably inadequate, you know, for some of you. Material exploration. Science is, is, is people using the senses that, that God has given us and the intelligence that God has given us to investigate the material world that we live in. Science doesn't pretend to say anything into the knowledge of the immaterial, but it seeks to speak to the material world. And science is an effort on man's part, right, for centuries now. It's an effort on man's part to try to explain what we see in the world today. So it goes back as far as it can with origin. And it's the question that we're answering today. How does this work? Or how did our world come into existence? We all know that science tries to answer those same questions. So let us say this first. Because we don't want to be... Um, anti-science Christians. 
Okay, there are anti-Christian scientists and there are also anti-science Christians who just want to have nothing to do with science and think that it's an invention of the devil. It's not. It's okay. You can, you're, you're, you can read a science book. You can watch the Discovery Channel. You're not going to go to hell for that. We appreciate science. We appreciate science. If, if science is the use of, the, uh, of our senses and our intelligence to know the world that God has made, if that's what science is, then for a Christian, science is fuel for worship. It is fuel for worship. Because our starting point is, well, whatever we learn about this world, God did it. God made it. So the more I understand about how this world functions and the complexity of it and the depth of it, the more I understand that, the more in awe I am of God. Right? And that's how it should work. It should be fuel for you for worship. Right? If you've got those planet Earth DVDs, right? John Piper says, you know, unknowingly these people produced for me a worship DVD. Because he just watches them and worships God. Because you watch these DVDs, right? And you watch about what this insect does and, and, and how this mountain was formed. And you, you read about this and you're just blown away, right? Of God's creation. And we're just now discovering it, but God's known about it for a while. He made it that way. There are things in the universe... Right, that we still have no conception of. There are things we still have not seen. Scientists acknowledge that. I mean, we're going as far as we can, but there is so much more that we do not see that right now is on display for God. Maybe angels, not even sure about that. But it's on display for God. And then in His timing, He is giving us permission through things like science to discover more of the universe that He made. And the responsibility of a Christian is to take those discoveries and to use them as kindling for their worship of God. God, that is is amazing that you did that. That is ridiculous that that is how this animal survives or how this plant lives. This is unbelievable. And you, you thought of that, God. That was conceived in God's mind. It was according to God's imagination. So I, I like, like, you should be interested in these things. And I'm keeping track of the Mars rover. You know we've got like a car on Mars right now. And it is taking pictures and video and it's digesting rocks. That's what they call it. It has a mechanical stomach. It digests rocks and makes observations and then disintegrates them and then sends back information to us on Earth to tell us things about Mars. And they're trying to figure out if life, you know, ever existed there. And so every time they see a rock, it's kind of funny. They freak out and think that it's, you know, used to be a plant or something. But we're learning about Mars. I mean, we can, you should be thankful for that. We can learn about Mars, the Hubble telescope. Have you seen the images that the Hubble telescope produces? You should go home and you should Google Hubble telescope. Right, a telescope that is in orbit around Earth. Every once in a while they go up there and they make upgrades. It looks further and further into space. Sends these HD images back to us here so that we can see further and further into the universe that God created. 
Now I see that and just plug it in to what we read about here in Genesis chapter 1 and think, God, you made that. You did that. Millions and billions of stars. Who knows what we can't even see. And you authored all of it. So we love, we love science. We love astronomy. Okay, we're pro-dinosaurs. We think they're great. God made them. We like, uh, we like biology. Okay, math, music, paleontology. Okay, but all of that is subservient to the Bible. So we've got to start with the Bible and make sure that we have science in its proper place. So, let me ask and answer this question. What do we do then when science and the Bible apparently collide? That's going to be the issue in Genesis chapter 1, which is why it's the laughing stock in science today. Many. So what do we do when what we read in the Bible seems to contradict science or what we discover scientifically seems to contradict the Bible? Well, the first point that I've already said, the Bible, Scripture, is our authority. So we don't believe that scientists are inspired. We believe that the authors of the Bible were inspired. Okay, we believe that man sees things dimly. We believe that there is much that is hidden from us as creation by our Creator and that we are on a need-to-know basis. So... Whatever scripture teaches us, once we're convinced and compelled that what scripture teaches us, we can use science to broaden our understanding of what the Bible teaches us, or maybe where there are gaps in God's testimony, because it doesn't tell us everything. There's maybe some filling in of the gaps that science can do, but all too often what Christians do is they start with science and then use the Bible to fill in the gaps. And if we do that, we're not saying and we're not believing that the Bible is God's word. Because Genesis is divine revelation and it reveals things to us that human investigation cannot unveil. So God knows. You're going to discover some things, okay? He gave us brains, okay? He gave us abilities, okay? He, he knows. We're not surprising God. We're not uncovering mysteries that he thought he Locked away forever. He knows what we're going to uncover. But he provides us in his word truth and knowledge that human investigation cannot reveal. It must be revealed to us from God. That is divine revelation. So the goal when we think of science in the Bible, I would say, isn't even to harmonize what science says and what the Bible says. And is definitely not to try to harmonize the Bible with what we discover scientifically. That is a slippery slope, Christian. We don't start with science and say, okay, now how can I make the Bible say what will support this conclusion that's been drawn scientifically? God says, listen, especially when it comes to creation, this is what God is saying, right? In the beginning, God. God is saying, I was there. You all want to speculate about what happened. And you want to apply your tests and your theories, and you want to put it in textbooks, okay, what happened? This is simply what God says. I was there. Prove me wrong. 
Do you believe it's God's word? If you believe it's God's word, then this is an account from God of what actually happened. And we try to take what we have and look at the way things are now and draw conclusions about the way things must have been. And there's some faultiness there. And we cannot argue with God. We cannot argue with God about the details based on the information that we have today about what things looked like in the beginning. That would be like my son Brady coming to my wife and I and arguing about the details of March 25th, 2004. That's the day he was born. It would be like him saying, you know, I've heard your testimony of, you know, what happened and when you went to the hospital and the hospital where I was born and, you know, and things. But I'm not so sure about that anymore. You know, I've done my research. You know, I've done some investigation and I've asked some questions and I've interviewed some people at the hospital and I'm drawing some conclusions based on what I've seen and him arguing with us. And our response to him would simply be, you know, we were there. In the beginning, mom and dad. And that was it. And you weren't there, buddy. And I saw it with my own two eyes. So listen, my account of what took place is the truth of what took place. And right, it'd be ridiculous for him to say, so we've got to be careful. Because that's a lot of what we try to do to change God's account to fit what we wanted to say. Now, all that said, finally, let me just give us permission, though, to do this. Again, don't be an anti-science Christian. We can read something in God's word. We can be convinced that we know what God's word says. And something can come up scientifically. And it is perfectly permissible for you to go back to your Bible and re-read where you drew those conclusions and see if that is indeed what the Bible says. There is nothing wrong with that. But if you remain convinced that the Bible says what the Bible says, then you debunk the science, not the Bible. Now that sounds, I know, ridiculous in our reasoning world. But either the Bible is God's word or it's not God's word. Either God is above us and can do crazy things beyond our comprehension or he works for us. So we're just, those are the presuppositions when we walk into this. But we don't want to instantly just deny everything we hear, right? The church did that with guys like Copernicus and Galileo, and most said a big sorry later on. Right? No, the Bible teaches that the universe, the galaxy is geocentric. Earth is at the center and everything revolves around the earth. Some still believe that, but most science would say that our galaxy is heliocentric. The sun is at the center and everything revolves around it. So you had Galileo who was looking at the Bible saying, I don't think the Bible says the earth has to be at the center. And the other Christians persecuted him and says, no, the earth is at the center. And then later a lot of them said, sorry. You can take science and go back to your Bible and say, did I, did I read that correctly? But if science is trying to tell you that Adam and Eve were just mythological figures, and that would make things a lot easier for you, but you go back to your Bible and you read Genesis chapter 2, 4, and following, you might end up having to come back to the science and say, sorry, science. The Word of God stands. Okay, that's it. Science in the Bible. Let's get back to chapter 1. And let's look at theories of creation. And a lot of these theories of creation, before we look at the actual days, they, they all get brought up here in the first three verses. So let me read the first three verses. Right, we're trying to answer this question, God made it, but how did he make it? 
In chapter 1, again, amongst Christians, it is, it is the most, one of the most debated passages in the entire Bible. Okay? Good, God-fearing Christians view this chapter differently. I read at least ten different perspectives on how we can read Genesis chapter 1. So, here's what the text says, and then we'll get into these different views. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, and now God's going to begin to create, and those are the days. We'll look at those in just a minute. But first, let me just cover five. Five views of creation. These are by far the dominant views today. Christian, not a Christian. I'm going to give you two Bad views, or wrong views, to good views, and the right view. <laughs> I say that with humility. Two wrong views, two good views, and the right view. Here's the deal. We do not, hear me say this, we do not fight over these. Now these first two, they're wrong. Okay, but the next three... We are not going to fight over this. Good, godly, Christian, Jesus-loving, Bible-reading Christians have disagreed on some of the details of this for centuries. And so we're going to just kind of come in riding on their shoulders and say, well, we're going to give it our best shot. Okay, but we know that there's going to be some, some room to move around as we study Genesis chapter 1. And that's what I want to be clear with you today about. So when we read Genesis 1, this is not what we're looking for. We're not saying, what is the answer? We want to know how God made the earth. We want to know what is the answer. What is the point that we must hit? And if you don't hit that, you are not a Christian. You're not going to get that from Genesis chapter 1. You're going to get a circle that's going to give us some parameters of orthodoxy. Some boundaries. And you can move around. And hold some different views within these boundaries and still be a Christian. You go out of those boundaries, you have some heretical view, no longer a Christian. But there's a circle and we can move around with these different views and we're still a Christian. There isn't a point here that you have to land on. There are many points you have to land on, Christian. Jesus was our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross whereby He propitiated the wrath of God and made possible for mercy to be extended to us and then imputed His righteousness to us which we have by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a point that you have to hit. And that's not a circle with some room to move around in. You see the difference? Now Genesis 1, there are some points you've got to hit. And we'll talk about those. But it's also, we're also saying, okay, here's, here's the parameters. Okay, and there's some freedom to, to move around in here as we try to figure out what it says. But basically, here's the points, and we'll elaborate later. God did it. It's orderly. It's good. We're not going to get too much more detail than that. God did it. So God is the author of all creation. And it's orderly. does things decently and in order. God keeps calm and carries on. 
done orderly and it's done well. It's good. That we can be sure of when we read this account of creation. But there's some details here. I'm going to try to persuade you what the right view is by telling you what the right view is. But there's some room. There's some room that we can move around within this text. I want you to skip down to chapter 2. We're going to start with day 7 and then move back to, to, to day 1. Okay, here are, the, here are the five views. Number one, atheistic evolution. Some of you have heard of this. <laughs> this is the dominant view in our day, right? You went to school, this is what you were taught in school. Okay, this is the dominant view. This is science and no God, no Bible. This is anti-religion science. This is an explanation for the uh, development and evolution of the world when you cut God out of it. You get atheistic evolution. Okay, this was popularized, not first proposed by, but it was popularized by and developed by Charles Darwin, right, who in 1859, he's got his famous work that you probably studied called On the Origin of the Species. They probably didn't tell you the whole title of his book. It was On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That's actually the full title, and you can see why they don't share the full title. We want you to be atheists but not racists. So he popularized, right, he was a naturalist, a scientist who popularized this theory that the world has come about, as we see it today, through evolution. Okay, there was the Big Bang. Okay, matter was coming together and expanding rapidly. And over billions and billions of years, we get what we have today. There were different species, there were variants within the species, different characteristics within the species. We acknowledge that. You've seen a green frog, you've seen a light green frog, you've seen a dark green frog. Variations within the species. However, as the species developed, there was overpopulation, there was a struggle for resources, and so you end up having a survival of the fittest, right? And so those with the qualities within that species that are most adaptable and and, and able to survive are going to win out. And over time, they're going to breed out those species with the characteristics that are not as good and helpful as those with better characteristics. And then the, the proposition is that over enough time, Billions of years that changes don't just occur within a species, which is called microevolution, and we believe that, but it leads to macroevolution. You have that happen for billions and billions and billions of years, and eventually a monkey becomes a man. This is atheistic evolution. Now, what precedes this theory of creation, what precedes this theory is there is no God. That is what drives this view. It's really not about science as much as it is there is no God. That's our starting point. Now, how do we explain the world we have today assuming there is no God? And it's actually a great theory if you take God out of it. That's all you're left with. We started here and we have evolved into what we see today. So this is a dominant view in our culture. And it's a dominant view in our culture because you know this. We live in a godless culture. 
We live in a culture that wants to cut God out. We have churches and Christians who want to cut God out, who don't want to be accountable, who want to change what the Bible says, who don't want to be under authority, who don't want to be in real relationships, who don't want to obey the Bible. And it's a godless quality that we have where we're trying to cut God out of our lives. And so the appeal of atheistic evolution is, well, I don't want God. I don't want mystery. Mystery is annoying, right? Mystery is totally annoying. We want to know how things work. We want to know how everything came about. And the Bible doesn't answer all those questions. But science through atheistic evolution at least proposes some answers to why everything came about. So if I embrace this, I can deny God, there's no mystery, and most importantly, I eliminate accountability. That is the massive appeal. Because if God made all this, then, oh no. But if God made everything, and God's in control of everything, then the next logical conclusion is, I'm accountable to someone. But if there's no God, there's no accountability. That is an enormous appeal to our sinful nature. That's number one, atheistic evolution. View number two, theistic evolution. We won't go into that. It's the same as atheistic evolution, except you believe that there's a God. So evolution, the Big Bang, everything, it's still how it played out. But a God is the one who wound up that clock in the beginning. He set the dice in motion, but now he's hands off. It's impersonal. It's not deliberate. It's not any direction. Everything's happening by chance and random occurrences, and it flows from deism. So those are the two Well, we would say bad views or wrong views. Okay, one says science is all we have to go on. Another says, no, the Bible is what we have to go on. The one with his Bible in his hands says those views are wrong. What I read in the Bible does not allow me to believe in atheistic or theistic evolution. So those two done. Now, two two good views. Two good views, and in, in my opinion, two uh, very interesting views. I, I might even end up, might even end up with one of these as, as time goes on. I see a lot of appeal in these two views. The first one is called progressive creationism. Progressive creationism. This is a fairly recent theory. Um, it's come about in the last few centuries as Christians have tried to harmonize science. They've tried to say, okay, is there a view of creation where we can be biblically faithful, but we can also subscribe to all of the scientific data? Is there a way that we can harmonize these and and bring them together? So here's what progressive creationism says. It says that there was direct and deliberate creation by God. So that's biblical, clearly. Direct and deliberate creation by God over a long period of time that corresponds roughly to the geological ages. So in other words, when you read day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, those aren't actual 24-hour days. Those are ages. And they could have each been millions of years or thousands of years. Or they were each a day, but each of those days is still evolving. So what God did on this day in creating the plants, plants are still evolving. God creating animals, animals are still evolving. And so it's a way of holding on to what the Bible says. It's okay, God created everything, but it wasn't done quickly. 
it was over this long, long, long period of time. And so when we look at the geological data that seems to show this layer of strata and that layer of strata and here are these fossils, and it sure looks like this place is really old. Like it does. It looks old, right? It does. It looks old. And scientific information that's coming in is saying that this world is old. So how do we harmonize that with what the Bible says? This is the desire of a progressive creationist. We say, okay, here we go. God has created directly and deliberately, but he has done it progressively over time. You got it. It's a good effort. Progressive creationism. Number four, uh, my favorite, actually. So my favorite and what I believe are the right view are different views. That sounds strange. The gap theory is the fourth view of, of creation. The gap theory. And if you want to understand that, let's just look back at verses 1, 2, and 3. Here's what the gap theory says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Insert gap right here before verse 2 of what could be billions and billions and billions of years. This is the gap theory. And then over billions and billions and billions of years, so God created everything. Sun, moon, stars, sometime billions of years ago. That's what verse 1 is telling you, past tense. God made everything. And then there's this long gap. And over time, the world became formless and void. And that's the setting for what we read here. So they actually would say that this is mistranslated, verse 2. They wouldn't say the, what... Our Bible says the earth was without form and void. They would say, no, it should be. Another translation is the earth became formless and void. So chapter verse one, billions of years ago. Then verse two is the setting for the creation account we read here. And then verse three and following is a literal six days. But God is not creating on those six days. He's ordering his creation. It's not ex nihilo creation. Ex nihilo means something from nothing. And so a gap theorist, a progressive creationist would say, okay, the ex nihilo happened billions of years ago. Then there was this long period of time, the gap theorist would say, then the earth became formless and void. Now this is God's palette. And now he doesn't actually create anything on any of these six days. He's ordering and moving things around. And when you read words like bara in the Hebrew, it can mean create, ex nihilo, something from nothing. But it can also mean to, to order and to organize and to place. And so the theory then is you've got this long gap, and then you've got the setting, verse 2, and then creation follows. And what you read here, including mankind, is, 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 is more recent than the rest of the, rest of the world. So, again, it is, it, it is an explanation that tries to say, okay, how can the earth be old and I hold on to biblical truth? And heavy hitters have held to this view. Guys like Arthur Pink, C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, they all held to varying, okay, views of this gap theory. Now, here's the, what I just think is the, the, the coolest part about this. And, and it's total conjecture. It's completely made up. But here's what most gap theorists do. They say, okay, here's this gap. There's some unanswered questions when we read Genesis, right? One of the big ones is, okay, God created. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. Yeah? And then Genesis 3, the devil's there. I'm sure you've asked the question, how did he get there? Where did he come from? 
God made everything. He made it good. Everything God makes is good. Did God make him? Did God make him? How is that possible? And how does he show up? And we don't read about him in there. Enter the gap theory. So then there's some obscure cryptic texts in the Old Testament. You've heard about this, about Satan. You know, I don't know what you've heard. He was an angel. We're not totally sure what it says, but it sounds like it might say that he was an angel. And then there was this war in heaven because he wanted to be God. And God cast him down to the earth. And so gap theorists will say that happened in the gap. And that's how it became formless and void. Pretty fascinating. Satan was up there. He was leading. You've heard he was the lead, worship leader in heaven. By the way, there's not a verse for that. Those of you that heard, he's the, people just told you that to make you burn all your secular CDs, right? He was not the worship leader in heaven. We don't have anything like that. But maybe that answers the question of the origin of evil in the world. Now, here's the problem with that. Total speculation. But, pretty cool, huh? So, fifth view. Fifth view. Uh, also known as the right view. <laughs> Let me start, start by saying the, the problem with the last two views that, that we looked at. The, the major problem and... and, and, and Christians who hold to the, this view would, would acknowledge that this is an issue or is a problem and, and some verses need to be made to say something that they don't seem to say at face value. Think about it. In our Bible, death shows up in Genesis chapter 3. Right? Sin shows up and the consequences of sin show up for the man, for the woman, and for the earth. Enters their decay. And death, as we see, not just in mankind, but as we see in the world around us. We live in a world that is, it, it, where there is decay and there is death. If you believe that God created the world billions of years ago, and then there was this period of time, and then there was a the creation, then you believe that there was death in the world before the fall of Adam and Eve. And Romans 5 and Romans 8 seem to make it very clear that the whole creation was subjected to death and decay as a result of this cataclysmic event in Genesis chapter 3 where sin entered the world. So that's the, the biggest, biggest problem. Now here's another thing. In regards to this last view, those who hold to the gap theory or crea progressive creationism will say that this view that I'm about to present is exegetically, it is the strongest view. That's undisputed. Science, it's got some problems. Okay, and so I will readily admit that. But this seems to be what the Bible clearly says. Fifth view, you've heard it. Literal six-day creationism. Literal six-day creationism. So, this teaches... That God created the universe in six literal 24-hour days. That would be my position. Exegetically, there is some gymnastics that needs to be done with the scriptures to make them say something other than that. If there's a gap between verse 1 and 2, as I said, that's total speculation. It has to be inferred. It says nothing of that in there, so it would have to be inserted. As well, the word that is used for day over and over again is the word yom, and it means day. 
It is true that it is used in other ways to mean ages at times. In 1 Peter 3, it says that a day is like a thousand years to God. But it doesn't seem to be what this is saying. It doesn't seem to be saying to me that each one of these days isn't actually a literal 24-hour day, but it is an age of an indefinite amount of time. As well... You see a description of each day and you see it defined where God says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, it's tough to say that that means a million years because that'd be a lot of evenings and a lot of mornings. So there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, and so on. So this means that the earth is new, which is why this verse struggles Right in the face of a lot of modern science. This would mean that the earth is roughly 6,000 to 20,000 years old. It depends on how you read the genealogies because there's gaps in the genealogies. So it could be as old as 20,000, but it might be as new as 6,000 years old. And when we look around, the earth to many looks a lot older than 6,000 years. And when we have data coming in from science, it seems to say that the earth is much older than 6,000 years old. And believe me, I would like to harmonize all of that with what the Bible teaches. At this point, for me, I'm uncomfortable doing that, and I can't make this say something other than what I'm hearing it say in the text. I do believe that it is possible for God to make something look old. We could do that, right? That's possible. I mean, when we see the account of Adam and Eve, I doubt that any of you believe that God created Adam in the garden as an itty-bitty baby. Adam looked like he was once a baby. But Adam was never a baby. God could create a world that looks like it was much older than it is. He could create a world that was already in motion. He could create a developed world. So that's my position is it seems literal and God does crazy things. That's my official position. So there's the circle. I hope that's helpful. It means a big deal and it comes up, it comes up all the time. So that's the circle. And we have freedom to move around in that circle with these different views. And we're not going to call you a heretic and kick you out of the church. You might be right, and I might be wrong. So that's the circle that we can move around in. But here's the points you have to land on. This is how the London Baptist Confession of Faith, penned in 1689. Here's what they said about creation. You must land on these. And if we don't land on these, we're not a Christian. Because this is clearly at least what the Bible says. Here's our parameters of orthodoxy. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. That's the point you have to land on. So what must I believe? That is what we must believe as Christians. So let's get into the days. This is great. Start with day seven, chapter two, verse one and three. Curtis read it. You remember what God does on the seventh day? God's got a work week. God's work week is different than most of our work weeks. Most of our work weeks, you know, three days we work, four days we break two-week vacation, at least two days off, right? We call it the weekend. God didn't have a weekend, one day. 
God worked for six days, took a day off. The Israelites worked for six days, took a day off. Okay, it's called the Sabbath day, which means it was a day of rest. God did nothing on the seventh day creatively. Now, some have said that God was tired. I mean, you rest when you're, when you're tired, right? That's not, this isn't the biblical concept of rest, though. God was not tired. God did not wear himself out. Wow, that was, that was more of an ordeal than I thought it was. I need a nap. This is not what God is doing on the seventh day. Here's what it, when it says that God rests on the seventh day, this is what it, it means. It means that God enjoyed the fruit of his labor. It means that God worked really hard. He made everything perfect. He made everything good. He made everything right. And on day seven, he enjoyed, enjoyed his creation. He marveled at his own glory. He marveled at his own beauty. He looked out at this creative display of his greatness and of his goodness, and he rested. So the Sabbath is, is, is rooted right, in the creation account. You'll read later as you read in Exodus that then there's some instruction that God gives the Israelites in regards to how they are to observe the Sabbath. We here at Veritas don't observe the Sabbath in that way. We don't even think it necessarily needs to be a specific day. But we do believe that we are mandated by God to Sabbath. That means we're against workaholics. That means we're against working seven days a week and and neglecting more important priorities. It means that we believe that God is big enough and God is good enough and God is gracious enough that we can take a day off and we can take that day off as, a, as an expression of trusting God to provide for our needs. And we stop and smell the roses, if you will. And we stop and enjoy God's creation. Again, it doesn't mean that you have a day where you sleep all day. Sometimes you need it. But it means that very purposefully... We are, as God did on that seventh day, we are looking at God's creation and we are thankful and expressing gratitude for all he has done. And typically that's not going to mean you're doing a lot of work. And this is what it means to Sabbath. John Calvin said this about the creation of the world. He said that God's world is his theater. It's a theater and the show that is on display is the glory of God. God. This is what God is doing in creation. And hear this now as we head into these days and see that this is what God is doing. He is this palette that he has. He is creating and he is creating this way to showcase himself. So all this is about God. And he does it this way and and gives us this beautiful world we live in and the mountains and the seas and the dogs and the cats and the cows and the food and the drink and everything that he gives us is meant to point us to how great he is, how good he is, how gracious he is, how loving he is. So each day feel that and think how grateful and thankful we are that God made it this way. Day one. We'll go through these quickly. And God said, this is Sunday. This is day one. Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. First thing to notice. God speaks and things are created. This is how God creates. This is the... The power of God's words. He speaks and it is so. He brings matter 
But this is all we have to go on. We don't even have, we aren't even able to conceive of pre-matter. And what do you have without the material? And what do you have without hydrogen? What do you have without neutrons and protons and electrons? We have no answer for that. But God created from nothing. God made matter, all things. And he did it just by saying a word. And on this first day, God said, let there be light. Is it? Beginning of his work week. The dawning of a a new day. Because like for us, it's like the rising of the sun. God says as he begins his creation, let there be light. Now you notice the sun is not created until day four. What this means is that the, the source of this light on day one has to be something other than the sun. Now, it's interesting, if you read about Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth, now we know there's light there and it's bright. But guess what is not there? There's no sun. God is light. The the image here is just God says, let there be light which emanates from himself. He literally shines on creation. It was good, day one. Day two, Monday, your favorite day, my favorite day. Every day is a Monday, right? That's the new book. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. It gets a little confusing. A lot of water. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. This is the firmament. Some of you heard that song last week. We sung about it in a worship song. I'd never heard that word before in my life. I'm up here Googling a word on my iPhone while I'm trying to sing a worship song because I don't even know what I'm saying. The firmament, apparently, is this expanse that God has created. So apparently in the beginning when things were formless and void, the, the water above and the, word, and the water beneath hovered very closely together. And then God made an expanse, which is what we see today. You look out, you can see water below, and you can see water above. It wasn't always so, but it was on Monday. We can go to the Pacific Ocean, we can see the waters beneath, and when the ominous clouds roll in, we know that there's water above us. And so this is God creating and preparing this world for the creation of mankind. Another interesting point to say as we read this account, this is the only day where God does not say it is good, and it's Monday. (laughs) Just saying. Verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. So God makes the dry land, separates the seas. And then God said, verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So here's God. He's making things habitable for mankind. And he's creating food. You're going to read that while cows are here, this is, they didn't eat cows until after Noah. It was pretty sad to be pre-Noah. 
They're eating vegetables. They're eating fruit. They're eating eating fruit off trees and, and, and berries off of plants. God is providing the food for them to eat. And you and I should think and praise God when we eat these foods that he has made for us. Did you ever consider that, that while God does make us in a way that we require nourishment and we require food, He also gave us taste buds to not just eat for sustenance, but to have pleasure in eating food. And some of you need to thank God more when you eat. I have cried at the dinner table. My wife has made such wonderful food for me to eat. I'm so thankful. I mean, I can go out and I can just eat a piece of fruit off of a tree, and it's amazing that God can make something taste that good. But then my wife takes these ingredients, and she puts them together, which, by the way, is reflecting the glory of God, which is something we should do as people, creating in the image of God, making in the image of God, organizing the things that God has given us to make something wonderful and beautiful. That's good. And I can eat this and be so thankful. And all she's doing, though, right, is she is, my wife's great, she uses, you know, organic food, natural food, doesn't throw chemicals in our food and things like that. If you do that, you're cheating, and it may taste good, but you don't get to thank God for the Twinkie. God did not make the Twinkie. Satan made the Twinkie. The ho-ho, the Reese's peanut, the Reese's peanut butter cup, they're good, but Satan made them. God didn't, so you don't thank God for that. But if your wife cooks organic, all right, you get to thank God. Because all she's doing, right, is she is just organizing, she's just organizing these things that God has made and presenting them in a beautiful way for us to eat. And, and we don't have that without day three. So that is a big Big day. Verse 14. And God said, here come the sun, the moon, and the stars. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, the lesser light to rule the night, that's the moon, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning on the fourth day. Day 5, verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply Fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Do you look out at this part of God's creation? And are you moved to worship? Do you, do you thank Him? Do you see what God has made? Do you see the, the animals and the insects and the birds and the fish that we are still discovering that God made? And He, he, he made them, one, for us to, to eat and to enjoy. And He made them for us to marvel at. You come to my house, our house is like a little farm in Roseville. We've got chickens, we've got goats, we've got ducks, we've got cats, we've got rabbits. 
We moved in. We weren't animal people. Now we're like animal hoarders. <laughs> people say, I've got an animal. We say, we got a room. We love animals. We do. We love going out there and seeing these animals. And one of the things we think about is God made this. And if God didn't make this animal, we wouldn't have this animal. That's amazing, God, that you make this. Day six. Here's the big day. It's the big day because there's more text devoted to day six than, than, than any of the other days. Um, it's, the, it's the longest section that we have. And, and everything has been building up at this point. So this is the pinnacle of God's creation is on day six when he makes mankind. Everything else has been creating and ordering and preparing and organizing everything so that it's ready for man. Right? The theater is built and now he puts man in the front seat of the theater to see the display of God's glory in creation. So let's look at day six. Next week we will just look at day six. But I, I want us to look. I want us to look especially at it now. And one of the reasons I want to look at it carefully now is because of what Pastor Curtis mentioned. By God's providence, this is the text we landed on today, where it talks about the dignity of human life, and here we are celebrating the sanctity of human life Sunday today. And this is why, as Christians, this is why we are grieved over abortion. Because of this text here. This is why we hurt over this. This is why we're some passionate about this. This is the why we, we, we pray over this. Because of the truth that we find foundationally right here in God's word. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. This verse, when it says we are created in the image of God, we'll look at next week at what that means for our responsibility and elaborate on that. But one thing we know that is true from this verse is how precious human life is.
Because unlike anything else in the created world, man and woman alone, baby boys and baby girls alone, are created in the image of God. Nothing else is made in the image of God. When God creates everything else, he looks, if you will, to his imagination. When he creates mankind, he looks to himself. And he creates what the scripture says literally is a replica of himself. And he gives us abilities and qualities and characteristics that are only found in God. He gives us a mind to think and to reason and to know. He gives us a heart. He gives us the capacity for, uh, for intelligence and the capacity to, to worship. He gives us the capacity to have relationships. He creates us unlike anything else in all of his creation. Therefore, because mankind is unlike anything else in God's creation, we see human life as precious. Precious. And every time I talk about this, I want to I wanna remember that 20%... Typically, 20% of the gals in my congregation will have already had an abortion. And so I want to make sure that when we talk about being grieved over this, that we are also emphasizing the forgiveness that is had in Jesus Christ Amen. for any and every sin. And we want to emphasize the help that is there and that is available for a, a shame and a guilt and a feeling that much of the world pretends isn't there. That's why we have the Alternatives Pregnancy Center here. We're not just raising money to prevent future abortions. We're hoping to raise money because they also help those who are post-abortive. Women who have had abortions and men who are involved in making the decision for those abortions. And we want the gospel to speak loud and clear. Abortion is not an unpardonable sin. Please. But that said, we must emphasize how precious human life is. To sober us so that we feel the weight of this. From 1973 to 2008, there were nearly 50 million legal abortions in the United States alone following the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. Over 1 million abortions per year in the United States, which means over 3,000 a day. California did not report abortion data to the CDC the last time it was requested of them, but in 2008, our state ranked number one with 24% of pregnancies ending in induced abortion in California. One out of four. And so this is, what, this is what we do, Christians. We hear this reality. We hear this reality, and then we read this truth. It says that these, let's break it down, that these babies are image bearers of God. And I look at my, my children. I have four little boys and one little girl, and they are image bearers of God. They are, as you and I are, they are marred images. 
They are sinful, but they are image bearers of God. And boys and girls differently. But each reflecting the beauty and the majesty and the glory of their creator. This is, it's all a theater, friends, where God is displaying. And this is the pinnacle of this theater, his creation of those who would have shared attributes with him. He creates these replicas to be a pointer to him of how wonderful and glorious and beautiful he is. That's why we love children at Veritas. We love Children, we take very literally, be fruitful and multiply. We are multiplying here. <laughs> look, look around. And we love that and we rejoice and we don't say not again when we learn of a new baby, whether someone is going to give birth to a child or they're adopting a child. We just want them in here because we love Children, they are a reward from God, and we love them. Yes, they are cute. Yes, they are cuddly. Absolutely. Mine are cuter than yours. They're more cuddly than yours. Hands down. But that's not what makes it so great. They are image bearers of God. Jesus goes so far to say, you better pay attention to these kids, because there's even something in their kidness that can teach you great things about God. So Jesus says, let them come to me, and you better let them come to you. So we listen to our kids and we play with our kids and we laugh with our kids and we cherish our kids and we don't push them aside. Because we love children because they bear the image of God. What we love in them and what's beautiful in them, what we sometimes can't even put our finger on is what Genesis 1 defines. They are image bearers of God. They're bearing His image to us. Okay, my children, your children, all children, you, you began bearing the image of God in the womb. That's why this is a big deal. I mean, I have heard the image of God. Every time when I went in for that prenatal appointment with my wife and they put that stethoscope on her tummy, then you just hear this whoosh, 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 this whirring sound, maybe a picture. Remember those doctors showing us these four little chambers and this heart beating? <laughs> we see that, we hear it, we just lose it. We're like, why are we losing it? Any other place if I just hear, whoosh, 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 does nothing for me. So why? Why is that? Why is that pierce? Why is that beautiful? Why are some of you tearing up? Why do you remember that? Why do you know that? Why do you confirm that that's beautiful? Can we, can we define why? Because that's an image bearer of God and there's nothing more beautiful, more glorious than God. Anything beautiful in this world derives its beauty from God. So day six, big day. So when you and I go home today, whether it's food, whether it's a tree, Okay, whether it's the sunset, whether it's your family, whether it's your children, we need to have right thinking that leads to the kind of right living where we enjoy and thank God for the gifts that He has given us. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for all that you have done before us. Father in heaven, thank you for putting truth around some of these emotions we experience. Thank you for defining the roots of beauty in your word. God, thank you for helping us to understand why inherently we know it's wrong when we see another human being hurt or killed. Thank you, God, for writing this portion of law in our hearts for our conscience, for making us a people who who know and who understand and grow in knowledge and understanding through your word of how precious life is. God, thank you for this theater that you've put us in. We thank you for the display of your glory that is all around us, that is in us and before us, behind us. The glory that is revealed even through our pain, even through our suffering, and you're never leaving us or forsaking us. God, thank you as we see this display of your glory, and if this world is a theater and these credits roll, that there's only one name in these credits, it's your name. That you are God. There is none other. There is none like you. And so where else would our worship and our praise and our thanksgiving go but to you, God? So God, thank you for making us a people who can adore you. We were so lost, we were so confused, and we were so unhappy when we were all about us. Thank you, God, for aligning us right. For coming before us in all of your glory. And giving us yourself to love and to worship and to adore forever. We give you all praise and glory and honor. And we pray this in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.
Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.